Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Commodities in Focus, Stevenson Harwood's podcast looking at key legal developments and topical issues affecting those engaged in the production, trading, carriage, storage and financing of commodities. My name is Jonathan Spearing and I'm a partner in the firm's Marine and International Trade Departments. I'm joined by my colleague Emma Skakel, who is also a Marine and International Trade Partner. Uh, Good morning, Emma. Good morning. So tell me, what topic are we going to be talking about today? Well, one of the issues that's been crossing our desks quite a bit recently concerns marine fuels um, and specifically bunker flashpoints. So with that in mind, we've decided to look at this topic in a bit more detail today. So we'll be asking what a flashpoint is to begin with, why it matters, what risks and issues might arise in relation to flashpoints, and finally what charters can do to mitigate those risks. So we're looking at it from a charter's perspective because that's consistent with the sort of trading emphasis of this podcast series. But obviously, if listeners would like to get in touch with any questions that might arise from other perspectives, we'd be more than happy to listen. And we're lucky enough to be joined for this discussion by our Marine Director, Rod Johnson. For those of you who don't know him, he has over four decades of experience in the shipping industry. Uh, and before reaching what I like to think of as the pinnacle of his career at Stevenson Harwood, uh, he spent more than a decade as a deck officer in the Merchant Navy working on a wide range of vessels. He had an extended run at Her Majesty's Coast Guard, and that included roles in port state control and marine surveying before he ultimately became the Chief Coast Guard. Uh, and in that guise, he headed up the UK delegations to the North Atlantic Coast Guard Forum and the EU Heads of Coast Guard Forum looking at safety and security policy. Uh, Latterly, he spent time as a jobbing marine consultant, a risk management director, and then spent time as the uh, COO for a global speciality insurer. So put simply, and to paraphrase a 1953 country music hit, Rod has forgotten more than most of us will ever know about the technical and practical aspects of shipping. Uh, Good morning, Rod. No, morning, Jonathan. Morning, Emma. That's uh, that's quite an introduction. I'll see if I can. I'll see if I can live up to it. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. So let's um, let's get down to business, uh, Rod. What is a flashpoint, and why is it becoming an issue uh, for marine fuels? Oh well, flashpoint. Okay, so very simply, that's um, the temperature at which a vapor forming over the top of a flammable liquid can be ignited with a suitable ignition source. So it's a scientific test, and there are a variety of ways of doing that test, which can get you slightly different results. And we can talk about why that might be a bit of an issue later on. The reason it's becoming a bit of an issue for marine fuels is because SOLAS specifies that the minimum flash point for any fuel used on board a ship should be 60 degrees C, the minimum. And during this past year, with the destruction and demand for fuel generally caused by the pandemic, that's automotive fuel, aviation fuel, marine fuel, as we all stayed at home and watched Netflix, we weren't using fuel. So the producers of particularly low sulfur marine fuel oil have been using that surplus demand to blend products. And although it's worked generally in terms of sulfur content, acidity, and all the other parameters by which fuel are measured, occasionally we're getting a batch of marine fuel which has a much lower flash point because it's been blended from fuels which have a lower flash point. So we're seeing it popping up uh, more and more and it's something that certainly the P&I clubs are doing some good work in flagging where these issues arise to try to inform owners and charterers where it might be a problem. 
You say that the, the minimum there is 60 degrees C for marine fuel. Just, just as a, a kind of guideline and indication, can you put that in context in, in relation to other fuels or, or other things? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it probably sounds a bit abstract, 60 degrees. Um, by comparison, if you look at um, petrol, that's got a flash point of 21 degrees. Gas oil, generally for automotive use, is around 50 degrees, depending on the particular blend. Barbecue lighter fluid is slightly less volatile than that. And gin sits at about 26 degrees. But if you are worried about the safety of your gin and tonic, you can reduce the flashpoint by adding tonic and a couple of ice cubes and a slice of lime, not lemon. And that will make your gin and tonic safe to consume. <laughs> okay, so if we move on now, what what happens if a low flashpoint fuel stem finds its way on board a ship? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the headline is you've straight away got a compliance issue because the book says that thou shalt not use marine fuels with a flashpoint of less than 60 degrees. And although you could... You could probably come at this problem from a variety of directions. You could say, well, um, okay, but the flashpoint isn't necessarily the arbitrator of what's safe and unsafe. There are other considerations. Most fuel fires are caused by auto-ignition and not flash. So that's the spraying of fuel over hot parts. To give you a sense of what that means, uh, most marine fuel oils have an auto-ignition temperature of about 250 degrees. That's the temperature at which it will spontaneously ignite. And the average exhaust gas temperature of a propulsive engine at sea is about six to 800 degrees. So you can see if you spray fuel over hot parts on an engine, you'll instantly get a fire. And the flashpoint isn't really featured in that as a measure of safety. Uh, there are also potentially there are there are ways that fuel vapor could be in an explosive mix in a tank, even if the flash point um, was higher, because it depends on the vapor that's produced and the proportion of vapor to oxygen that makes it dangerous. So first and foremost, it's not as if you've got a real safety risk straight away, but you have got a compliance risk. Um, so you could get into trouble at port state control and that in turn could lead could lead in certain circumstances to allegations of unseaworthiness if let's say the reserve of good fuel that you've got on board isn't sufficient for the forthcoming section of the voyage so you could have your bunker tanks full of fuel that is ostensibly unusable and leaving you with a very small reserve so that's the first problem that you've got now there are a number of ways that you might want to deal with it, each of which has certain risks and benefits. So first one, it might be to refuse delivery of the fuel. You know, you've, you've seen what it says on the data sheet. The flashpoint is off spec, refuse. And that could set you off on, for example, where else do I get my fuel? Can I go somewhere else for my fuel? What happens? You know, so there, there's delay and disruption caused by that. You could... Um, Discharge the fuel. Keep you know. Once you discover that it's on board, take it somewhere and land it again. There's cost and time involved in that. And if it is off spec, it's scrap oil when it's sold, so it has a lesser value. So there'll be dispute territory there um, and cost. There are some practical measures that you can take. So, for example, it is possible that the sample that was used when the flash point was detected 
was taken near the top of the tank. So you can leave the fuel in the ship and take and have it a laboratory do another measurement in a few days time and it might weather down a bit because we are talking about light and volatile fractions and they can weather off so there is that prospect particularly if you're only just off the 60 degree threshold i've heard that people would be prepared to blend it and i would strongly advise against that because unless your fuel has what we call a low tsp a target sediment potential then mingling synthetic fuels can produce the formation of asphaltine sludge which will get stuck in the filters and the injectors and generally damage your engine so mingling is probably not a good idea i've heard it done at sort of 80 percent good fuel 20 percent bad fuel or 80 percent one fuel 20 percent another fuel without incident but there's always that risk of co-mingling fuels or you could you could use it but um, on the basis that the flashpoint isn't the delimiter between safe and unsafe. But the problem you've got with using it is you've then thrown yourself immediately into the jaws of the compliance problem and you've accepted ownership of the fuel. So they're the sort of things that can happen if you suddenly find that you've, you've got the stuff on board uh, and your options to deal with it are quite limited. Okay, so there's obviously a wide range of risk issues that arise there in a practical sense that that could potentially lead to some quite big numbers uh, in terms of financial liability so with that in mind emma i was just wondering can you help us put that into some legal context in terms of the, the 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 contractual situation between the parties involved yeah sure so starting at the beginning this issue is relevant essentially to time charters which require the charterer to provide the bunkers and this is unlike a voyage charter where the bunkers are usually supplied by the owner so when we're looking at this in a trading scenario we're talking about essentially the fob buyer or the cif seller so under english common law there's an absolute duty on the charterers to provide bunkers of reasonable quality and suitable for the type of engine fitted to the particular ship. So that's your sort of starting point. Mostly, however, these days, the charter will include express requirements as to the type and the specific type and grade of the fuel to be supplied. So obviously, where you have a stipulation in the contract, you must comply with that. So, for example, you may decide to include the BIMCO bunker quality and liability clause. We see that often incorporated. And that clause provides that the fuel must comply with the ISO standard that Rod's been discussing. So from a a, a charter's perspective, what will they potentially be looking at in in terms of the loss that could result from uh, off-spec bunkers being put onto a ship? Yeah, so as you've already touched on, the damage that can be sort of suffered by a charterer in respect of a claim from the owner usually um, as a result of being supplied off specification fuel can be absolutely huge. It's not limited, for example, to you know the difference between the price of the off specifications fuel and, and fuel that had been within the specification. Uh, first of all, you could have damage to either your main or auxiliary engine. Um, And this is if the bunkers have been consumed already and the issue only comes to light once they've started to be burnt. Um, And this may be because you have to start burning the bunkers before you've uh, received the results of your testing. Or it could be that you have a fraudulent certificate that shows that the bunkers were on spec when they were actually off spec. So you could have a claim for damage to the vessel. 
Secondly, you could have a claim for loss of time because the vessel may have to divert to discharge the off-spec bunkers and stem new bunkers. And also loss of time could arise from reduced performance. So it may be that orders are given that the speed has to be reduced in order to accommodate the off-spec bunkers. Third, you could be in a situation where not only you have a claim against uh, being brought against you by the owner, but you've got no recourse against your supplier because of particularly onerous bunker supply uh, terms and conditions um, with regard to maybe time bar or limitations on liability. Finally, you could have claims under your uh, sale contract, for example. So default or delay, you know, if you're chartering the vessel, there could be an impact on your ability to perform your, your sale contract and therefore you could suffer losses under that. So you can immediately see that the losses can very quickly escalate. I suppose that now brings us on to what is ultimately the crux of this discussion, uh, probably the thing of, of most interest to our listeners. What can charters do to minimise their exposure? You know, what, what practical steps should they be taking? Yeah, I mean, there's a few. So the first one might seem obvious, and that's to really make sure you know your supplier and that you know your supply chain. So right at the start of the process, um, you carry out your due diligence, you structure voyage orders so that bunker stems are taken in reputable locations and from reputable suppliers. Make sure as far as you can that you know that the supplier has sufficient insurance, um, professional indemnity, product liability insurance, so that if you do have a claim against them, they are going to be um, able to pay out under it. Uh, Similarly, with your supply chain, who does your supplier contract with? How do they ensure their quality procedures are sufficient with regard to subcontracting? Um, What rules and regulations apply to those contracts? Um, What jurisdiction will you be um, arguing in if you have a dispute? Secondly, you want to be looking at your contract, obviously. Uh, We've talked about being uh, very precise about your fuel specifications in your charter party. Equally, if you want to be able to pass your bunker supplier, you need to be ensuring that those specifications are set out in great detail in your supply contract um, with the relevant ISO specification for flashpoints, for example. You should also ensure that there's an express term there warranting that the fuel is free from contaminants and MARPOR compliant. So you've done your due diligence, you've got your contract right with regard to the specification of fuel. The next thing to think about is probably the sampling and testing procedures. And again, this will all be set out in your contract. So you should insist on a fuel quality certificate at the point of supply. And this will give you an indication of the specification. But of course, you can't just rely on that. So this is where the sampling process becomes very important. So if possible, you should engage your own surveyor to take samples. And those samples should be drip samples, ideally, at the ship's manifold, rather than, for example, on the barge, because then you just have the reduced your chance of anything happening in, in that period of time. Uh, You should ensure that um, ideally the sampling process is witnessed by all parties, including the owner or the master of the vessel. And then when it comes to the testing itself, the contract should ideally identify a specific testing laboratory. And then the other thing to think about with regard to the testing itself is if there's a dispute, which sample is going to be 
tested to determine whether the fuel was actually on or off specification because some of the bunker supply contracts you will see say that it's their sample that will be tested and that will be determinative so you need to look out that you're not agreeing to onerous terms that later on you realize will leave you in an exposed position as regards passing on any claim that you may receive under your charter party to the bunker supplier. A couple of other things to look out for in the um, bunker supply contracts, because um, as I've touched on, they're usually heavily weighted in favour of the bunker supplier, being often their terms and conditions that you need to contract on. One of them is time bar. So often they'll have very short time bars, sometimes only seven days, for example, in which to bring a claim. And, you know, as I've touched on, it may be that the... um, problem only comes to light once you start burning the bunkers and they for example cause damage to the engine and that may be well after seven days that you um, identify these problems and then suddenly you can't pass any claim on to the bunker supplier so think about renegotiating low time bars if you can Um, the BIMCO clause has a time bar of 30 days so that's better than the seven days so if you can incorporate that clause it's probably worth it. Similarly, limitations on liability were often very low in bunker supply contracts. So there may be an express term restricting your ability to claim for consequential losses. So the types of losses that I've already talked about, you know, loss of hire, having to deviate, damage to the vessel. There's also likely to be a liability cap in terms of the amount that you can claim. And that's usually tagged to um, the purchase price of the fuel. So while you're, you, you know, it's going to be a negotiation after all, um, those are the sorts of clauses you should look out for and seek, try to renegotiate if you can. If we sum up where we've got to uh, during the course of this discussion, it seems to me that this low flashpoint issue is a real and present one in the market at the moment, that has been driven in large part by the collapse of fuel use uh, as a result of the COVID crisis, and that's seen low flashpoint fuels being blended into bunkers. If you are a time charterer supplying bunkers which turn out to have a a low flashpoint or below 60 degrees, that presents you with uh, a a number of problems that can't easily be blended away. Uh, You've got a variety of risks in, in terms of uh, claims you could face from, from owners and under uh, supply contracts as well if, if you're in a sale contract chain too. And there may be difficulties in, in many circumstances in pursuing claims against the bunker suppliers. So in most situations where we advise clients where we say prevention is better than cure. So the best way to mitigate the risk is to try and avoid the problem happening in the first place, which brings into discussion all the things you're saying about Uh, due diligence and and trying to avoid um, having uh, low flashpoint bunkers going on on the ship. But beyond that, it's really a matter of negotiating the right contract terms, making sure you have sampling analysis and everything else right in your charters, and then where you can, try to soften the terms you have with bunker suppliers so you open up uh, something more of a possibility of bringing claims against them, probably on an indemnity basis if you face claims yourself. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think so, Jonathan. I um, I was normally the guy with the overalls holding a spanner when this is all going on. So it's um, you can't tell by looking at it. But yeah, there's a lot of, I think what you're saying is there's a lot of work that's got to go behind every bunker stem to make sure that, uh, to make sure that it goes smoothly. Uh, one final question before we sign off. Uh, pop quiz. Go on then. Can either of you tell me 
who first sang the 1953 country music hit that I referred to earlier. Ha, it's a bit before my time, I'm afraid. <laughs> Hang on, I'm just trying to work out. Give me the reference again, Jonathan. What was the, what, what was the hint? I forgot more than you will ever know. Oh, I tell you, what, I'm just getting this wild guess. I'm going to say it was Charlie Pride. <sighs> it's the Davis sisters. No, we say that. At least according to Wikipedia. <laughs> Although it has been it has been covered many times by Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis. But certainly not Charlie Pride. There you go. <laughs> but it's amazing how songs like that can make their way into um, popular terminology. Yeah, and it's the, there's the um, uh, country and western uh, gas, the LNG song. You know, you picked a fine time to leave me loose heel. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can work that one into a, into a subsequent podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I suppose now the time has come just to say thank you to you both for your, uh, your insights, which has been um, fantastic as always. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jonathan. And thank you as well to our uh, listeners. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, but obviously, if there's anything that arises out of it or in relation to anything else, please feel free to contact us or your usual contact at Stevenson Harwood. Thank you. Mm-hmm.